0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. One of my great accomplishments of this year was the construction of a brand new home office. After years working on this program in converted bedrooms, I built a full feature workspace in the basement and it is lovely. For the first time since I started doing this program in 1993, all my stuff is in one place. All the computers, all the CDs and vinyl and books and magazines, they're all together. It is a marvelously efficient workspace. this however was not an easy project. renovations being what they are took a full 10 weeks longer than projected. there were permits, trade problems uh, materials, you know the usual stuff and then there was the matter of all this stuff that I had scattered about the house. I I feel really terrible for Matt and Alicia. they were a couple of interns who had to haul thousands of books, most of them hardcover. Out of storage and down to the basement where they had to be sorted by topic and then alphabetized and then neatly put on the shelves. Matt had the horrible duty of filing hundreds of CDs that I neglected for a couple of years. And then there were dozens of banker's boxes, many of them filled with forgotten research notes and newspaper clippings. Which brings me to this. Collectively, me and the interns uncovered a lot of material. This was archaeology. This is material that's never been used on this Program before. And, and we thought it would be a shame to let all that knowledge go to waste, right? So here we go. This is the third annual Office Cleanout, another edition of 60 mind blowing facts about music in 60 minutes. This is the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Welcome again to my annual knowledge sale where all stock must go. I'm Alan Cross and, um, I am a hoarder. Whenever I find a piece of musical information that makes me go, wow, that's cool, I squirrel it away somewhere, hoping that I might have a chance to use it on a future ongoing history program, which is a really good thing to do in theory, but I always end the year with a huge archive of stuff that never found a home. So rather than risk this stuff getting lost or having to store it for another year, I let everything go on one big blowout of information before the end of the year holidays. Please excuse the random nature of this presentation. A lot of this stuff is pretty disjointed, but this kind of data dump can be rather unruly. I mean, just look at WikiLeaks. So here we go. This is number one. When they were touring the world, Duran Duran used to get the local age of consent printed on their set list so they could avoid any um, misunderstandings. Number two, authorities are always trying to control how much fun we can have. Take the case of New York City, where until recently it was illegal to dance in a place that served alcohol unless you had a special cabaret license that cost thousands of dollars. It also required that you be fingerprinted and was denied to anybody with a criminal record, which is crazy. This law came into effect in 1926. ...as a way to crack down on the speakeasies in Harlem... ...not just because of prohibition... ...because this was a way to stop whites and blacks from mixing. It was even illegal to play a radio or the piano in a bar until 1936. Midnight police raids were common. People were arrested for just swaying to the music. Bar owners were charged... In the 1980s, Rudy Giuliani used this law to crack down on hip-hop venues and raves, forcing dance parties into dangerous underground, unlicensed warehouse and basements. Fortunately, though, New York has finally grown up, and the anti-dancing laws were killed off just this year. Number three. What was the highest concert ever? And let's be very clear, I'm talking about altitude, not anything involving chemicals. There are two ways we can look at this. First of all, we can look at gigs that took place without leaving the ground. And that record belongs to a group of musicians from Germany and Bolivia, who held a small concert for mountain climbers on Mount Acotango in Bolivia. This gig happened at 19,911 feet. Second, we could look at concert performances aboard airplanes. And the highest airplane concert record belongs to Tony Hadley, he of Spandu Ballet, and 80 star Kim Wilde, among others who performed a charity gig aboard a charted British Airways 767, which reached 43,000 feet. But if we really want to get pedantic about it, the all-time altitude record goes to Commander Chris Hadfield aboard the International Space Station. He performed a show for people on the ground when he was in orbit at a height of 400 kilometers. Number 4. Humans love music so much that we're determined to export it to the rest of the universe. It started with our invention of radio, which inadvertently sent music into space starting about 100 years ago. That means if there's life on any of the 300 or so Earth-like planets within 50 light years of us, alien calls to our request line should be lighting up right about now. But our music exports aren't restricted to radio signals. We've been sending physical music product out there for decades. We've heard about the Voyager records, but what was the first song performed in space? On December 7th, 1965, Wally Shira and Thomas Stafford pulled out a harmonica and some handbells that they'd stowed away aboard Gemini 6 and performed jingle bells for the planet. Few people beyond mission control heard their amateurs playing, but still, you know, they were first. Number five, lip-syncing is banned in Turkmenistan. Back in 2005, the bad poop crazy president, Saparmurat Niyazov said that lip-syncing created, quote, a negative effect on the development of singing and musical art, and therefore outlawed it in Turkmenistan forever. Oh, and by the way, he banned opera and ballet in 2001, saying that it did not correspond to the national mentality. This is point six. The first documented example of fans throwing something at performers on stage was the Beatles, apparently, on their first ever tour of the U.S. They were constantly pelted with jelly beans, And Gerard Way of My Chemical Romance grew up in a very, very Catholic family. He had so much of the fear of God injected into him that he was too scared to walk by the funeral home down from his house. He says that Sunday school was like a Vincent Price movie. Let's continue with our 60 mind-blowing facts in 60 minutes. This is fact number eight. There was once a British band called the Dead Dianas. Their gig posters featured shots of the car accident that killed Princess Diana. They were banned. A lot. Number nine. When the darkness was at their peak, all sorts of fans showed up to autograph sessions. One fan brought his grandmother's dead dog. He was stuffed, but, you know, still... Number 10. Back in 2008, Warner Music Group tried to bring liner notes to digital downloads on iTunes when they added interactive booklets to 75 albums on iTunes. The problem was the content used Flash, and Apple stopped supporting that because of a security flaw. Disney tried something similar called CDVU+, but nobody cared. Number 11. The guy who invented the underlying technology of the compact disc was a Seattle scientist named Jim Russell. He came up with the basic principles back in the 1960s. Then, Russell and the patents ended up with a Toronto company in the 1980s who tried to sue for licensing fees and royalties on CD technology. And although there was eventually a settlement, Russell didn't get a cut of anything. Number 12. At one point in the last decade, a UN treaty could have made podcasting illegal. Yeah, a UN treaty. The UN's World Intellectual Property Rights Association wanted to prohibit the ability to aggregate and mirror content online, whether it's copyrighted or not. Obviously, that never happened. Number 13, the first proper songs to be licensed for inclusion into a video game was, any guesses? Michael Jackson's Billie Jean and Beat It. It was in the Sega Genesis game Moonwalker in 1990. And number 14, when Weezer's second album, Pinkerton, didn't do as well as Rivers Cuomo had hoped, he dropped out of Harvard, where he had been studying music, and hid in his room, which had the walls and ceilings painted black and had the windows blocked out with layers of fiberglass insulation. The plan was to purge himself of all weaknesses so he could concentrate on writing the perfect pop song. Must have worked, right? Ah! We pick up our 60 and 60 list with number 15. In 2006, F-Series Ford Pickups offered a built-in laptop that could send email right from the cab. It could also play MP3s. This was an option that cost $3,000. Microsoft also offered a PC the size of a Cracker Jack box that was installed in the dash and did the same sort of thing and it sold for $2,000. Number 16. The idea for noise-canceling headphones originated in 1978 when Amar Bose, the guy behind Bose Speakers, hated the headphones an airline provided him on a flight. But before they went on sale to the general public, the technology was used by the Air Force, the Army, and aviation professionals. Number 17. If you have a baby and you want to instill a sense of rhythm... Medical research says you should bounce the baby on your knee or against your chest while music plays. That'll give the kid a better-than-normal chance of appreciating beats and maybe want to dance later in life. Number 18. Psychologists say that introverts often make the best front persons for bands. Why? Well, because shy musicians tend to pick up on the crowd's energy and can create a closer, more authentic connection with the audience. That seemed a little counterintuitive at first, but when you think about it, it does kind of make sense. Number 19. The next time you're shopping for wine, note the music playing in the store. A 1993 experiment showed that when classical music was played, people stopped and examined the labels more often and more carefully when compared to times when other genres of music were playing. They also ended up buying more expensive bottles of wine. And number 20. Number 20. We've all seen TV shows where surgeons play music when they're in the operating room. The first recorded instances of music being played during surgery goes back to medical journals published in the early 1950s. And according to Spotify, the most popular rock song played by surgeons while they're operating is Rock You Like a Hurricane from the Scorpions. This is the 11th most popular song. Makes me just a little nervous. Should I stay or should I go the 11th most popular song played by surgeons while they operate according to spotify make of that what you will we've gone through 20 of our 60 mind-blowing facts schedule for these 60 minutes and we'll pick things up with number 21 in just a second. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is the third annual knowledge clearout, known as 60 Mind-Blowing Facts About Music in 60 Minutes. And here is point number 21. A design firm in London once proposed phones, mobile phones, that would shock their owners if the phone perceived the owner was talking too loud. I kind of like that. Number 22. Tom DeLong isn't in Blink 182 anymore. He's working full time as a UFO researcher and is determined to expose the vast government cover up conspiracy of the existence of aliens. Meanwhile, his wife is designing children's furniture. Number 23. When a well known musician commits suicide, psychologists warn of copycat suicides by fans. This is known as the Werther effect. An example would be those who took their own life after Kurt Cobain died. The most pronounced example of the Werther effect was when Marilyn Monroe died. Suicides in the U.S. rose by 12%. Number 24. When the city of Reykjavik, Iceland, celebrating the 200th anniversary of its founding in 1986, Bjork and the rest of the Sugar Cubes, which was her band at the time, broke into the government-run radio station and played songs they thought were realistic. They got arrested for that. Yet in 2000, after Bjork became internationally famous... The government offered to give her an island, her own island. She declined. Number 25. I ran across a survey that pitted the tastes of music critics versus those of the general public. The public's favorite albums were from Nora Jones, The Eagles, and Meatloaf. The critics professed to love Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, The Fall, and Captain Beefart's baffling 1969 album, Trout Mask Replica. 26. In 1977, the Ramones played a show in Marseille, France. They played so loud and drew so much power from the mains that they caused a blackout in their part of the city. Number 27. When all the members of the Killers were on tour together, they had a very specific drinking schedule. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, their backstage writer specified Maker's Mark Whiskey and Absolute Vodka. On Sunday, the drinking called for tequila and Jameson's Irish Whiskey. I couldn't find out what they drank on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Number 28. When Noel Gallagher was a teenager, he and his mates stole a milk truck after locking the driver in a public bathroom. They gave up when they realized that there was really nothing they could do with 20,000 quarts of milk. Number 29. There was once an international rock festival in North Korea. It was called the Rock for Peace concert, and it took place over four days in 2006. I have no idea who was on the bill. And number 30. When John Frusciante auditioned for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the band was still doing the thing where they appeared on stage wearing nothing but socks over their privates. Part of the audition required Frusciante to prove that he had enough of a package to hold up a gym sock. It did. He got the job. (laughs) Moving on to more mind-blowing facts. We are at number 31 now. Vance Joy was a star Australian rules football player before he became famous as a singer. He even won Rookie of the Year in his league in 2008. Number 32. When Josh Homme of Queens of the Stone Age first wanted to learn how to play the guitar at the age of nine, he took polka lessons. Think about that the next time you listen to him play guitar. Number 33, Matthew Schultz of Cage the Elephant spends his downtime on the road playing chess against the road crew. Number 34, Dan Reynolds, the singer for Imagine Dragons, worked as a Mormon missionary for two years when he turned 19. And number 35, speaking of Mormons, once again, the most streamed song of any track released in the UK before 2010 is Mr. Brightside by The Killers. There have been just seven times since it was released in 2004, that it hasn't been on the UK Top 100 Singles Chart. Released in 2004, and still almost always in the Top 100 of the British Singles Charts. Moving to number 36 in our 60 and 60 list, there is a new medical condition on the books known as boy band induced pneumothorax. It's caused by screaming and singing so loud at a boy band concert that your lungs spontaneously collapse. If that happens, you need emergency medical attention. This condition went down in the medical journals after a young girl was presented at hospital after a One Direction concert. Number 37. Bono often used to tour with his own full time priest and spiritual advisor, a guy named Reverend Jack Heaslip. He met you two when he was a teacher and counselor at Mount Temple High School in Dublin when the band members were still boys. They were students at the school. Reverend Jack died in 2015. Number 38. Back to government interference in music. Alexander Lukashenko is the president and dictator of Belarus. He has complete control over what artists get played on Belarusian radio. Songs by foreign artists are limited to 20%, but he has banned so many local performers because he doesn't like them that Belarusian radio stations have a hard time finding enough music to play. Number 39. The average person spends $156 a year on music. And of that, an average of $9 goes to streaming music services. And number 40, if you visit Chris Cornell's grave in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which, by the way, is outlined with hundreds of orange carnations, or at least when I was there earlier this year, look across the road from Chris's grave. He's buried just a few feet from a memorial to Toto, the dog from Wizard of Oz. We now have covered 40 of our 60 mind-blowing facts about music, one-third yet to go, and we'll start with the home stretch in just a second. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition, with Alan Cross. Welcome back to the third annual 60 Mind-Blowing Facts About Music in 60 Minutes. I'm Alan Cross, and this is the year-end cleanup of notes and scraps of paper around my office that I've accumulated over the last 12 months, but never had a chance to use them for one of these shows or a blog post or a column or anything. So rather than risk this stuff getting lost forever, I've gone through the pile and pulled out the 60 best nuggets. And we are now up to number 41. If you're an audiophile and a member of the 1%, there's a set of speakers called the Enigma Veyron EV1D. They're from a manufacturer called Karma. Equipped with something called Omega F Drivers, the surfaces of the tweeter cones are covered in diamonds. These things retail for over $1 million a pair. Number 42. Pascal Wallish, who works as a psychology professor at New York University, gave 190 students in the faculty a test to determine how much of a psychopath each of them may be. Among the questions were statements like, For me, what's right is whatever I can get away with. So you get the idea. Then came the musical tests. Participants were played a large selection of music, from top 40 hits to classical pieces, making sure that most of the songs were totally unfamiliar to the students, so as to eliminate personal bias. They were then asked to rate how much they liked or disliked the 100 or so selections. Then came the real fun, where the answers to the psychopathy questions were correlated with how the students rated the music, When all was said and done, about 20 songs seemed to be very popular and very unpopular with students who rated high on the psychopath scale. Here's where it gets interesting. Psychopathic trending students really dug Eminem's Lose Yourself, Blackstreet's No Diggity, and Justin Bieber's Do What You Mean. These same people rated songs like Money for Nothing by Dire Straits and the next My Sharona really low. Same thing with classical music. They didn't like it. Make of this what you will. Number 43, the world's biggest record show was held every November in Utrecht in the Netherlands. At least 500 dealers set up for two days inside a giant convention hall. Number 44, a radio station in Malmö, Sweden, had their signal hijacked for half an hour this year by someone who managed to play an English-language ISIS recruiting song on repeat. Number 45, and still with radio... A regulatory body has ruled it's okay to use the F-bomb on Canadian radio as long as it's broadcast in French. The thinking is the word has become very common in the French language. And if it's used by a French speaker on the radio, it's not as bad as someone speaking it in English. Just weird. Number 46. Jack White wrote a children's book this year based on the White Stripes song, We're Going to Be Friends. Number 47, Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker was based on old TV interviews with Tom Waits. When you see the old video, you know, the similarities are obvious. Number 48, the people at KFC, yes, the chicken place, follow less than a dozen people on Twitter. Five of them are named Herb, and the other six are members of the Spice Girls. Think about that for a while. You'll get the joke. Number 49, The hottest band merch of 2017 seems to have been fidget spinners. Everybody sold branded fidget spinners. Arcade Fire, David Bowie, Prince, Black Flag, The Misfits, Nirvana, Queens of the Stone Age. Followed, boy. Weird. And point 50. If you're going to sneak drugs into a music festival, do not do what this guy in Australia did. He slathered his pills with Vegemite and then hid his stash in plastic bags wrapped around his package he didn't count on there being a very good drug dog at the gate who went right for the drugs. Ow. Drugs in my pocket, Yeah, i got drugs in my pocket. I'm wearing out these shoes for them. The monks from 1979 with drugs in my pocket, or wherever. Ten more facts to go. This is number 51. When producers were pulling together the TV series that would be known as Mad Men, they offered Beck the chance to write the score. They offered him the gig multiple times, but he turned them all down. Number 52, and still with television. Morrissey was invited to appear on Friends. Yes, that TV show. But he declined because the script called for him to sing with Phoebe's character. Maybe he had something against Smelly Cat. I don't know. Oh, Google that if you don't get the reference. Number 53 has one more piece of TV and music trivia. James Murphy was once offered a job as a scriptwriter for Seinfeld, but he turned that down in favor of sticking with music, which resulted in LCD sound system. Number 54, Radiohead has to share songwriting credits on the song Creep with a guy named Albert Hammond, who contended that Creep sounded too much like a song he wrote in 1972 for the Hollies called The Air That I Breathe. Albert Hammond is the father of Albert Hammond Jr. of the Strokes. And 55. Listen carefully to this song by Garbage. The moaning in the background of number one crush from the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack is actually Madonna. The sample is taken from her song Bedtime Story, which was co produced by Garbage producer Nellie Hooper. Who knew? Let's finish off our 60 mind-blowing facts in 60 minutes with these final five items. Number 56. If you play Spanish guitar, you'll know what I mean by gut strings. They were originally made from the intestines of slaughtered sheep. Those strings changed to nylon during World War II when all the gut string was allocated for use as surgical thread for wounded soldiers. Number 57. Remember the famous synthesizer notes played in Close Encounters of the Third Kind? The keyboard used was something called an ARP 2500. That very synth is on display at the National Music Center in Calgary. Number 58. Lemmy of Motorhead was a fixture at a venue called The Rainbow on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. After he died, they preserved his favorite chair at the end of the bar as a tribute. You can also order a drink in the bar called a Lemmy. It was his favorite drink. Uh, Jack Daniels and Coke. Number 59. In 1996, Ringo Starr went to Japan to take part in an ad for a brand of... Applesauce. Why, why applesauce? Well, apparently that's what Ringo means in Japanese. I haven't checked that. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. And number 60. In 2004, the people who make Preparation H approached the estate of Johnny Cash with bags of money asking, pretty please, could they use the song Ring of Fire in a commercial for their hemorrhoid ointment? They said No. Back because that would have been a great Preparation age commercial. There are some on, on YouTube, but I think they're fake. Back in a moment. More of the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. So there, the office is a little more tidy, and I'm confident that this data dump has gone to a good home. But the notes and scraps and files and other pieces of information are going to pile up again until it's time to have another program like this. And I, I know things went by very fast, which is why I've posted all 60 of these facts online. Just go to my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. We have that site updated every single day. And there's also a free newsletter that goes along with it. You should sign up for that. If you're looking for me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Google+, Plus, I'm in all those places. And as for straight-ahead communication, email is, frankly, the best way, alan at alancross.ca. Oh, and don't forget about all the podcasts. Each show is available as a podcast within a few days of the radio program. Subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Talk to you soon. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.